This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button push it stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Once again, it is time once again for Evidence for Faith, the Christian radio show where we explain the benefits of Christianity for personal happiness and human flourishing, and we give you the arguments that show that the Christian worldview is true. We are sponsored in part by Grace Community Church of Waterford Works, New Jersey, and we are exclusively on WIBG Radio streaming live over the internet at WIBG.com. You can check us out also at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. And if you'd like to call the show and talk to us about the subjects we'll be covering today or ask us any questions you'd like, you can call us at 609-398-1020. Hello, my name is Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And today with us, we have author Kirk Hastings. This is a, an ongoing interview uh, with Kirk, who wrote a book, a very fascinating, um, really, it's, a, it's an expose uh, of what evolution is all about and what creationism is all about, uh, the facts and the science behind it. Uh, we're talking about uh, his search for truth and uh, basically a complete outline of, you know what, Keith, this book amounts to a synopsis of really our last 90 shows. Yes. We've been on the air now almost two years, mm-hmm. and we talked about a variety of subjects, and I believe that Kirk has touched on pretty much uh, just about everything that we've talked about. So hello, Kirk Hastings. Welcome back. Hello there. Yes, I've noticed that, too, that uh, your radio show is, my book is almost a written version of your radio show. Isn't that interesting? It's very interesting. <laughs> and uh, Kirk has been gracious enough to offer a free book to a caller who will answer the following question. What is the difference, the, the scientific difference between microevolution and macroevolution? If you are the first caller at 398-1020, we will mail you a book. The difference between micro and macroevolution. If you listened to our show last week, you'll know the answer to this question. That's true. Yep, and if you go to Wikipedia real quick, you might get it before <laughs> anybody else, too. And that's a uh, $25 value there, too. It is. Because it's that's, a, and it's an, an excellent, book. excellent book, very well written, good glossary of terms in the back, and also a, a really, really extensive annotated bibliography, which, which I've been checking out myself. Now, before we jump into the topic today, I want to address an email that we got about the show that we did on Buddhism and uh, Christianity, how Christianity is different from other religions, and we talked about the strangeness of Buddhism compared to Christianity, how Christians view Buddhism as probably the most different religion from Christianity. And uh, this person was a former Buddhist or studied Buddhism in Tibet and is become a Christian now and mentioned a couple things that we neglected to say and kind of got wrong because, uh, you know, missed, missed really um, the full explanation. So we were short of time, uh, but we didn't explain well. 
One was we used the word dharma, and I used it actually in, a, in describing the phenomenon that uh, Buddhists believe that as the phenomena of, that you're experiencing in the world hits you, it's actually an illusion. Well, dharma is also a word, and it's mainly used as uh, the, the Buddhist doctrine, the Buddhist truths, the Buddhist teachings, and it's called the dharma. So um, that's the main meaning of the word, not phenomena, although it is a secondary meaning of the word phenomena. And so, so I was technically correct, but uh, missed the fact that most people who would know the word are going to know it as the teachings of, uh, of Buddhism. So and then the second, uh, the second issue was the concept of idol worship in Buddhism. And we did say at the time that Buddhism is essentially an atheistic religion. But there are versions, there are variations of Buddhism where they will have idols, they will have Buddha idols, and they will put food before them. And I think I made some comment about, you know, them believing that the idol was going to eat the food or something. In reality, what they're doing is they're using the religious practice of devotion to an idol for their uh, mental improvement, essentially. It's like a, um, uh, a discipline, let's put it that way. So th- in addition to a discipline such as meditation, they might also use the discipline of devotion to an idol, even though they are still, in a sense, being atheistic. They don't believe that there is any ultimate reality and no ultimate uh, idol out there. So so that's a correction we want to uh, make sure, and we're happy that people are listening and correcting us. If you catch us with anything else, we want to make sure that everything on this show is totally correct. So thanks again. That was from Cowboy Bob. Thank you, Cowboy Bob, for those corrections. And I, I'd like to reiterate that uh, point, Keith. The email that people send us is for not only points of clarification, but also elucidation. There may be something that we're not saying correctly or a major glaring leave-out that we want people to know. You know, this is an open forum. We have nothing to hide, and we want people to feel that we are um, available and uh, that we will respond to their emails. So you may e- email us at evidence forfaith.com evidence the number for faith.com right just go to the website and there's a contact button there and you can contact us that way and we're monitoring it during the show so if you don't want to call in you can email us just also as a point of clarification if you are interested in finding out uh, about prior shows you can go to that same website and download uh, prior uh, broadcasts Or you can go to iTunes and download uh, previous uh, um, broadcasts in the podcast format. And uh, they are accessible, about 90 shows at this point in time. And uh, I just wanted to make a comment, Keith, uh, about the uh, most frequently accessed shows that we've been tracking. Yeah, do that. The the most frequently accessed show is Fulfilled Prophecy. Uh, That's number one. Uh, That was dated 1027 of 09. Uh, the next uh, most popular is How Reliable Are the Gospels? That was dated 516-2010. Uh, 
Um, number three on the hit parade is why our kids leave the church. That's dated 5-9-2010. Number four, interview with Brett Kunkel. Um, and lastly, recent archaeological discoveries. That was dated 1-3-2010. The one with Brett Kunkel was 9-22-09. Uh, this is very interesting and, and informative to us because it tells us a little bit about what our listeners are looking for and um, uh, really want answers to. Absolutely. Now, I've got another news item. I thought this was interesting. I don't want to get into the politics of it. It's about that California Proposition 8 that Judge Vaughn Walker overthrew. And it has to do with the issue of homosexual marriage. And when he overthrew it, he said, quote, that it, quote, enshrines in the California Constitution the the notion that opposite-sex couples are superior to same-sex couples. Now, that actually is true, and the scientific evidence shows that that is true. So he overthrew it for completely false concepts, and Breakpoint.org published some information that I thought was valuable to share with the audience because we're always trying to show that Christianity, the ideas that stem from Christianity, do lead to a better life for people. And one of the ideas that Christianity has put forth to the world is that it's better for children to be raised by opposite-sex biological parents. So what we know, and this is from Breakpoint, is that the two-biological parent household is the best environment for raising children. The evidence is overwhelming. On average, children raised outside of a stable two-biological parent household complete fewer years of schooling, are more likely to drop out of school, more likely to commit delinquent acts, abuse alcohol, drugs, live in poverty, than kids growing up in intact families. Now, this isn't to say they point out that children can't be successfully raised outside the traditional families, but a society where many children are raised outside of traditional families will experience more adverse consequences. So that's uh, to point out that uh, Christianity does provide a better way to live for people. So how do we know it's true, though? How do we know that it's true? Well, the evidence. That's it. Listen to this show every Sunday at 4 o'clock and find out. Uh, There (laughs) you go. This show is Evidence for Faith. And before we get into Kirk's book, which we're going to get into uh, very briefly, I wanted to use this as a stepping stone uh, because today's show is going to be dealing mostly with the scientific facts, okay? And uh, I want to quote um, a Ph.D. researcher at Oxford. His name is Alistair McGrath, uh, and he talks about uh, discovering his Christian faith. Okay, now this this is a big shot at Oxford, a Ph.D. researcher, uh, and he says this. To my surprise, I discovered Christianity. It was the intellectually most exhilarating and spiritually stimulating thing that I could ever hope to describe. Better than chemistry, a wonderful subject that I had thought to be the love of my life and my future career. I went on to gain a doctorate for research in molecular biophysics from Oxford and found that immensely exciting and satisfying, but I knew I had found something better, like the pearl of great price that Jesus talks about in the gospel, which is so beautiful and so precious that it overshadows everything 
It was intellectually satisfying, imaginatively engaging, and aesthetically exciting. Wow. That's a great quote. It is a great quote. And that's what this show is about. We're trying to show Christians that Christianity is intellectually exciting. You do not have to park your brain at the door when you become a Christian. I don't think you're going to hear that quote anytime soon on the nightly network news. Nope. Nope. But anyway, uh, the last... By the way, welcome back, Keith. Keith was in Minnesota this past week uh, uh, getting updates on uh, the pacemaker uh, career that he's very much involved with. Yep. Uh, So he can uh, not only uh, help you with your spiritual heart and soul, but uh, physically if (laughs) if your heart is... uh, ailing you. Uh, he might be the guy that uh, calls on you at uh, one of the local major hospitals in the South Jersey region. But anyway, uh, last week we reviewed uh, something that has to do with intellectual discernment, and I think it's worthy to go over before we start getting into uh, archaeology and paleontology, which is going to be the topic of, of today's show. Mm-hmm. And just to recap, last week we talked about intellectual ra- uh, rationalization. We talked about evidences both for and against a particular theory or topic. Okay, because in your quest and search for what is truth, you have to look at both sides of the coin, both sides of the argument. You have to look at facts that are both objective and verifiable. You have to use logic um, and rational thought as well as probability to come to a conclusion that's reasonable and satisfying and correct. Okay, so with that in mind, we're going to talk about evidences uh, for the topic at hand, which is, where did we come from? What are the evidences? You know, there are really only two answers to that. You're, you're going to either believe in spontaneous evolution, I'm sorry, spontaneous generation and, and the subsequent evolution of, of organisms into creatures, or you're going to believe that uh, creation happened, supernatural creation, and that the God of the universe started the whole life process. Um, And I made a comment last week, which I still think holds true, even though a week has gone by, that science has never, ever been able to explain sexual reproduction. So I think that everything came two by two, male and female they came, and uh, this is how uh, life started with both sexes simultaneously and sexual reproduction. If you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis, and with us today we have Kirk Hastings, the author of What is Truth? So let's get into What is Truth? Okay, Kirk, last week we talked about the life processes and the evidences for and against uh, either creation or evolution. Mm-hmm. And if you wanted to give a little synopsis of what we talked about last week, that's great. Well, you basically just said it there that uh, even scientists have admitted a number of times, which we went through last week, that there's really only two possible explanations for how everything got here. Either we have spontaneous generation, either everything just appeared on its own somehow, or an intelligent, uh, if you want to say an intelligent God or an intelligent designer or whatever it was, uh, created everything. There, that's the only two theories we have to work with. No one's ever come up with a viable third one. And we went through some of the scientific evidences based on scientific laws that we know uh, that argue against the possibility of spontaneous generation, which is uh, that idea in itself was disproven a couple hundred years ago by scientists like Louis Pasteur, which most people know. 
that you know they used to think that flies spontaneously generated in in decaying meat until they found out that wasn't true um and that's really what evolution is based on that the idea that lifeless chemicals could somehow evolve into a living cell and then it would evolve from there and the scientific laws like the first and second laws of thermodynamics uh, argue against that idea um, the laws against spontaneous generation happening argue against it uh, the scientific law of biogenesis which basically means like begets like argues against it in other words if you have something alive something alive had to create it which really argues for god and we also know that the current research shows that the universe had a beginning point yes we can't say when that happened but we know that it did happen and it had a beginning one of the major things that evolution needs to work is lots and lots of time preferably millions and billions of years of it which means that basically the universe would have had to have always been here for life to generate in it but we went through the uh, some of the evidences that uh, for instance Einstein came to the conclusion that the universe is not infinite it had a beginning point and it is in the process of winding down mm. it's true well today we're going to be talking about the fossil record because that's the next section in your book mm-hmm. that is uh, part five Mm-hmm. So you mean to tell me, Kirk, that the fossil record proves Christianity is true? I thought it did just the opposite. I thought the fossil record proves that evolution is true and that you Christians, your ideas are just a bunch of bunk. Well, that's what a bunch of evolutionists would have you believe. However, here's an interesting quote that I have right at the beginning of my chapter on this by Stephen Jay Gould, who passed away a couple of years ago, but until then, he was one of the preeminent evolutionary scientists in the world. He said, the absence of fossil evidence for intermediary stages between major transitions in organic design has been a persistent and nagging problem for gradualistic accounts of evolution. And we're going to look at all of that evidence today to show everybody uh, once and for all Uh, that the fossil record does indeed support uh, creationism and mass extinction. It does. Not not the appearance of new life forms, but mass extinction. There are are fewer life forms present today in this modern day and age than there ever was before. And And they've been looking for them for more than, for about 200 years now since uh, The Origin of Species was published. And they have fewer examples now than they did back then. Because they've disproven some of them that they thought were true. And there's a a news media blurb that we hear every couple of months about this species or that species Mm -hmm. being near extinction and new laws are being passed to protect it and so forth. But then again, we also lose species and we hear about them. Mm -hmm. And this is what the the fossil record shows, the the loss of speciation, not the creation of new species. And you're right, ever since 1859 when Darwin published his Origin of the Species, paleontologists and archaeologists and everybody else they've been looking for this this fossil this missing link fossil that's going to prove once and for all the ascent of man from primate those sciences were in their infancy back then and they assumed that they were going to find all these transitionary forces uh you know examples and unfortunately for the evolutionists that has not happened so kirk if they're not finding these transitionary forms what are they finding 
what do they find when they look into the They're fossil basically record? finding that most species in the fossil record exist for a long time and stay basically the same, and then some of them immediately uh, or overnight disappear, and they're gone. What, what if they look back early enough? What do they find at the very beginning, at the low levels of the... Uh, lowest levels of the fossil record. Okay, if you go all the way back, uh, they we have something called the Cambrian Explosion. Yep. If you're familiar at all with the geologic time system that they use, how they've divided the ages of time into different periods, and the Cambrian period is the first period in history where they say there were very simple life forms and single-celled creatures that mm -hmm. existed that started the evolutionary chain. However, the evidence that they have found in the last uh, 100 years or more has shown that um, there's something called the Cambrian Explosion where all of a sudden in the fossil record there are all these types of living creatures that suddenly appear in the fossil record with no evidence of anything before them. And now, as now some of these evolutionary scientists right. themselves admit, That's they say these things appear as if they had no evolutionary history whatsoever. They admit that. Right. But they have no explanation for how that happened or what came before it. You That's know, a big problem for the evolutionists to explain this. Yeah, just as a, a point of clarification, I wanted to throw out some big terms out there. We're, we're talking about the, uh, the systems that, that, that's been in place for uh, classifying, classifying geologic time. And basically mm -hmm. there's four major eras. Uh, the, the first is the Precambrian era, which is the age of hidden life, yes. where simple microorganisms evolved. Right. The second is the Paleozoic era which is the age of ancient life, and that's when the marine invertebrates evolved and came onto the scene. Or amphibians. Right. And the Mesozoic era, the age of medieval life, the dinosaurs and all the other large reptiles. The one that we like to make movies of. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. And then the Cenozoic era, or the age of recent life, which is that of mammals and man and basically the contemporary creatures that we're used to living with. Right. Okay. So this is the, 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 the geologic time frames that we're talking about. So what does the actual record show, the fossil record? The fossil record shows that a number of living species appear suddenly in the fossil record with no previous history. Right. That's what it shows. In fact, it's basically every single body plan. If you divide up living things into different body plans, body types, mm -hmm. virtually it's not... 100%, but it's virtually every single body plan that exists today suddenly mm -hmm. appears during the Cambrian explosion. Some of them in a, in a simpler form, but yes, right. pretty much everything, uh, every bodily system we have today appeared suddenly. Yeah. And even the sci evolutionary scientists are baffled by this. They say, well, we're not sure how this happened. In but we know evolution did it somehow. <laughs> right. In a geologic blink of time. Right. Well, blink of the, the eye. This, this theory was first actually put forth in 1785 by a geologist by the name of James Hutton. Yes. Um, and he talked about these geologic processes 
taking millions and millions of years to produce the modern landscape that we find whenever we go on an archaeological dig. Yes, okay. and isn't that amazing that this is just in 1785, which is not that long ago, where they first came up with this idea. Right. Some people out there may be thinking, well, we've thought this for hundreds or thousands of years, but that's not true. They just came up with this idea relatively recently. Yeah, and, and you're right. And then in 1830, Charles Lydell wrote his Principles of Geology, and that actually gave uh, Hutton's theory a name, and we call that uniformitarianism or yes. gradualism. Yes. And this was actually the foundational piece that Charles Darwin used as a springboard to yes, writing his... his um, Origin of Species. Origin of the Species in 1859. So all of this kind of came together uh, in the intellectual circles of the day uh, back then. And uh, Darwin's theory was not a new one. These no. people had been bouncing it uh, back and forth at, uh, sure. at dinner conversation and so forth. Prior some, to. some version of this idea that everything just kind of evolved on its own has really been around for thousands of years. Right. And If you're just tuning in, you are listening to the Evidence for Faith radio show. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis, and today we are interviewing author Kirk Hastings. What is truth? Welcome back, Kirk. Thank you. About his book, What is Truth? What is Truth. And we're going to give a book away. We are. To a caller. All you have to do is call the radio station at 398-1020. If you can answer the question, the difference between micro and macro evolution, you will get a free book, What is Truth? All of the science and all the bibliography is in there. Can I also mention the book is available on Amazon.com. Amazon.com. And I should also mention, I looked at the listing the other day, and it does say temporarily out of stock, but that doesn't really mean anything. You can still hit the button and order it, and they'll send it to you. Right. Or you can call here quickly. Sure. Right. Get a free one. Okay. But anyway, getting back to this geologic column that we're we're talking about, it's interesting, Kirk, that this geologic column is mostly theoretical, it's presupposition, and it's hierarchical, and please note, listeners, that this does not exist anywhere on Earth. In its no. entirety. In its, in, in its entirety, right. The we neat, see, the we neat see little drawing pieces. that you've seen in your textbooks in elementary school where it shows the side of a mountain as if it's been cut in half and it shows all the different levels in it, that actually does not exist in that form anywhere in the world. In its this entirety. is a theoretical right. idea, and I mention in my book that even the Grand Canyon, which has a bunch of different levels of strata in it, all the uh, geologic ages that they theorize are not represented there. Mm-hmm. There's no place in the world where you can find a neat little column with all of them stacked on top of each other. And this I is a theoretical idea. And I know that there's, there is a place somewhere uh, where dinosaurs... Uh, remains, fossil remains, and human footprints coexist. There's a few of them. Which is not part of this uh, this column uh, they that we're find supposed ex- to see. They find exceptions to the geologic column all the time. Yeah. And some of these discoveries, uh, I'm, I know of probably at least a half a dozen of them, or maybe more, and probably the most famous one, I believe, is in Texas where they have dinosaur footprints and human footprints in the same strata. Now, this is a problem for evolutionists because according to their timeline, dinosaurs were supposed to have died out millions of years before the first human being walked the earth. How do they explain this? Basically, they say, we don't know. We haven't figured this out yet. Right, and there are other examples of inversions where you have uh, rocks 
uh, older rocks on top of younger rocks, which is yes. inverted. It should be the other way around. Yes. There, like I said, there are many, many exceptions to this geologic column all over the world, and there is no one spot in the world where this column exists exactly the way that drawing shows it. And the Cambrian explosion is the biggest bugaboo because yep. suddenly all of these life forms show up out of nowhere without any preceding life forms at all. Just boom. They're out there. Out of nowhere, they're there. Right. And all of the basic uh, animal groups uh, appear suddenly in the record without any trace of evolutionary ancestorship at all. Mm -hmm. Now, here's an interesting trivia question for you. The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin does not explain where any species came from. The book is actually mistitled because he does not deal with where any particular species actually came from anywhere in the book. He starts with what he considers the earliest forms of life and how they evolved, but he doesn't explain where any of them came from. Right. He doesn't explain the onset of life itself, the life no. form. Yeah. So it's technically not the origin of species. Right. Well, the development yeah, of species, the evolution of species, yes, but the origin, no. <laughs> well, he means, he means that uh, one species can come from another species in yes. the sense of hint to the listeners who are trying to get the answer right for the book, uh, <laughs> micro-evolutionary way, in, in the sense that a pigeon can develop feathers that uh, cover its head, different from other pigeons, and that becomes a new species of pigeon. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, that's where the species come from. So that's what he was referring to, but or he in does a broader it, sense, he he tries doesn't to explain tell us where pigeons come from. No. He right. tells us how he thinks an amphibian could evolve into a dinosaur and a dinosaur can evolve into a mammal and a mammal can evolve into a man. But where did the first species come from? He has no answer to that. Right. Now, you talk about the geologic record, you talked about the stasis Lack of intermediate uh, forms. Thank yes. you. <laughs> That's a hard word but to say. But there are, I mean, I've heard of these transitional forms. I've heard of these, uh, like Archaeopteryx. Mm. I think I pronounced that one right. Uh huh. So what do you say about that? I mean, when I was a little kid studying dinosaurs, I knew all these names, and Archaeopteryx was one of the first ones I knew. Probably most kids today know that too. However, what they don't know is that they used to, this, the Archaeopteryx fossil was first discovered in 1861, shortly after the Origin of Species was published, and the evolutionists were very excited by this find because they said, look, here we have a transitional form between a lizard and a bird. This proves that evolution is true. What you don't hear is additional research in the past 100, 150 years has shown that Archaeopteryx is actually not a transitional form. That there are birds, there are lizards that have similar feather-like structures to the Archaeopteryx, and there are birds that have claws like the Archaeopteryx. Therefore, it's not a transitional form. And they have also found true birds in the fossil record that date back before Archaeopteryx. So it couldn't have been a transitional form. Oh, well, that's, that's the most powerful argument. So yep. is Archaeopteryx a bird, or is it something else? It is else? now officially considered a flying lizard. Okay. so It's not a bird. To me, that still sounds like a transitional form, then. Mm, not really. <laughs> a flying it, it, lizard? That's what they call it, but 
if you get down to the scientific uh, mumbo jumbo, it's not either a bird or a lizard. It's different from both, and they've they've declassified it from both categories. So if it doesn't fit into either category, it it can't be a transition between the two. Well, it, it can't, especially if, if there are true birds that birds, existed before. Yeah, there you go. That's that's yeah. So so it isn't that a transitional really messes form. the whole thing up. <laughs> right. So it, so even though it can sound like it's a transi- transitional form because it has lizard-like and bird-like qualities. Yes. Uh, the fact that there are birds that came before it argues against that idea. Right. You know what I find fascinating about uh, all of this, and we're going to be talking about more examples, is that the lack of intermediate life forms, uh, and by the way, Darwin fully expected that these intermediate life forms would eventually be discovered. Yes. We are 150 years later, and we have none. He expected to find hundreds of these in the ensuing years, and so far we've found none. Right, and the paleontologists are still looking, and they're still wishful uh, wishful thinking. The famous missing link is still missing. <laughs> yeah, and so, so basically we're virtually without proof uh, for these transitional life forms, um, and the fossil record does indeed show stasis. It doesn't show change. It shows no. extinction, but it does not show it shows It shows species staying exactly the same for yep. sometimes millions of years, according to what they say, uh, and either continuing to the present day pretty much unchanged or dying out at some point and being gone. So no predictable progression, which is a great phrase, has ever been shown in the fossil record. Nope. But they're still looking. And they very much want to find it. And every now and again, you'll find a headline in the newspaper saying, oh, missing link discovered in China, missing link found in India. But in every case, and I have quite a few of these examples documented in my book from recent years in every case within a few months afterwards they'll come out with a little article on back on page 20 of the newspaper saying well we made a mistake this really wasn't what we thought it was mm. Here, here's another fascinating quote i i love from your book um uh, and i'm quoting david Ropp. he's a well-respected paleontologist at the university of chicago uh, in the field museum He states that many professional scientists whose training is often completely outside of the realms of evolutionary biology and paleontology mistakenly think that the fossil record is far more supportive of of Darwinism than it really is, probably because many broad generalizations contained in, as Rupp says, low-level textbooks and semi-popular articles. And he admits that there is also some wishful thinking involved. Pretty strong uh, commentary and by specials on CNN and MSNBC claiming mm-hmm. we found the missing link. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so these specials are not based on the the most current scientific information, and many times are proved to be complete frauds, which has happened quite a few times in recent years. But you don't hear the follow up article about them being frauds very often. It's it's very embarrassing, really, for the scientists. Sure. So what is the actual status of species then? If uh, are do species gradually delve into other types of species? Is there this gradual broad uh, speciation? Yeah, um, life form. Can you go from bacteria all the way in this very gradual progression all the way up to man, or are there these clumps? or groupings of types of animals? The short answer, no. We have not one 
proven transitional form of one species changing into another species in the fossil record, not one. And, you know, just as a point of clarification, Keith, uh, we're, we're delving into microevolution, whereby the genetic predisposition of a specific bird, you know, whether it's a pigeon or not, they can have many different varieties, whether it's the amount of covering on their head or the type of wing or the number of feathers in their wing. That's already genetically predetermined. Yes. Now, loss of information can give you different speciation, and then with time, they lose the ability to interbreed. Right. Now, that's, that's microevolution, and all scientists, including creation scientists, believe that microevolution is a true process and that it exists. But again, this is something that's predetermined by the genetic information at hand. Loss of genetic information, mutations, and so forth can lead to, and I've always said this uh, in my own practice of internal medicine, disease, death, or deformity. But it yes. also can lead to some speciation differences, which does not allow for interbreeding to occur. In right. almost all cases, when you have uh, some kind of a deviation from the norm, like you're talking about, uh, the creature suffering from it dies pretty quickly. It doesn't pass on that characteristic. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it dies. Okay. And not, I would say 99.9% .9 of all genetic mutations are harmful mutations and the well, other the, ones the expressed mutations the other ones yes the other ones are not improvements they may not kill the creature but they're not it's it's not like you see in these science fiction movies that oh somebody will have a mutated child and he has a huge brain or something and he's you know more intelligent than everyone else i mean there's no record that i'm aware of of a genetic mutation actually being an improvement upon what came before they're almost always um, worse. Right, right. Or they're only better because something worse has happened that enables them to be better in a certain situation. So mm, Perhaps. Well, yeah, such as bacterial um, resistance to, to antibiotics. Right. That's, that's usually but a loss that. of an enzyme that, that would normally be, let's say, incapacitated by the penicil penicillin molecule. Because they don't have an enzyme system that doesn't respond to the penicillin's normal mode of action, then that bacteria is resistant and therefore uh, has evolved into a superbug. Right. But it's really loss of information. And evolutionists like to use that kind of example that, oh, this bug has evolved a resistance to the pesticide we're using against it. See, evolution is true. But that bug is still the same bug. It may have a resistance now, but it's it didn't change into a different species. That's a whole different issue that right. they like to fudge. Well, it's, we're talking about micro versus macro evolution. Right. Right. But let's let's get back into some more of the evidences. Uh, we talked about Archaeopteryx, but there's some other examples that you bring up in your book, wh which I think are germane to this discussion. Um, uh, one of which is, for instance, uh, um, Archaeoraptor. You want to make any comments about that one? Um, um, th that's one of, of a few examples I give in my book of a similar situation to Archaeopteryx where they discover a creature and they say, oh, you know, here we've discovered a lizard that has feathers on it. This proves that there's an evolutionary link between lizards and birds. And suddenly you he it's on the front page of National Geographic magazine. It's on CNN. It's on NBC. It's on the front page of your paper you know, dramatic um, progression in evolutionary study. And then they find out either that the situation was a hoax, which a number of times has happened, 
uh, or they made a mistake or they did further research and they found out that these things that look like feathers actually aren't. Yes. That happens all the time, more than people suspect. Yeah, Argyraptor made a big splash in October of 99 and turned out to be a fraud. And, and likewise, the uh, Mononychus uh, was also in Time magazine in 1993. Yep. And that also was uh, a fraud. They were frauds. Mm -hmm. They were actual um, examples of people finding fossils of two different species and putting them together to make it look like it was one creature. Right, yeah. Because they really wanted to prove that evolution was true, so they got a little uh, ahead of themselves, right. you might say politely, and then the and came up with a false creature. Right. And I, I have a third example over the last 20 years. This happened in 1996, uh, and it was Sinosauropteryx. 1996 was also later to be disproved. Uh, but it's interesting. That's You're the right. one with the feathers on it. Yeah. They did, thought they had discovered a lizard with feathers on it, right. and it turned out to be false, that they were... Uh, something other than feathers, and they misrepresented what they were. Mm. But, but you didn't, I remember a lot of these stories when they came out, but I don't remember ever seeing the retractions afterwards. Mm. It's interesting. You know, you bring up the, the term cladism in your book. Yeah. Um, and this this is really the, the, um, the science behind uh, the species and the similarities of these species, and whether it's plant or animal, they all have... Um, and they can be identified as having ancestors with similar similarities or, let's say, genetic makeup mm -hmm. as other species. Um, and and in, es in essence, this really opposes Darwinism. Do you want to clarify that, Kirk? Yeah, well, th this uh, what you're talking about is a system of classification that uh, I have documented in my book that goes back to scientists back in the 1700s who believed that this was the case. And what cladism really means simply is that it's the assumption that whenever you find a, a fossilized species, if you find another fossilized species that looks similar to it, you don't make the assumption that they're connected in any way unless you have specific evidence that shows that they are. Now, evolutionists use a lot of assumption in their classifications of fossils, if one fossil looks kind of like another one, they say, oh, one was probably related to the other and one, came, one evolved into the other. But they really don't have any specific scientific proof to say that. It's an assumption because it looks similar. Cladism says if two species look similar, that doesn't mean that they're related to each other. Mm. They're two different species until we prove otherwise. You are listening to Evidence for Faith. We are interviewing author Kirk Hastings about his book, What is Truth? I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And I'm Kirk Hastings, guest for the week. Absolutely. One last chance for people to call in to get a free book, a signed copy of Kirk's book, What is Truth? They just they have to email answer us too, a question. Right? Can they email us too, or is this just a phone call? Well, so far we've made it just a phone call. So Okay. And the question is? The question is, please define for us the difference between micro and macro evolution. And you can have a book signed by Kirk Hastings. Wow. Mm -hmm. I think I'm going to answer it. <laughs> <laughs> that would be cheating. Yes. But anyway. So, so let's go beyond this um, 
uh, evolutionary chain of events that we're talking about and get down into, you start to talk about the human evolutionary tree. Mm. Oh, so that's really interesting when you get into that. Doesn't that follow this progression of one species to another? Don't we go from monkeys and chimp apes, chimpanzees, up to some Homo erectus and other early pre-men? If Isn't you watch a lot of TV and, and read a lot of newspapers, it certainly sounds that way, doesn't it? But here's the actual truth. The, if you take all of the human remains that they have in the fossil record all over the world and brought them into one place, they would not fill one coffin box. Wow. Now... If you consider all of the different types of prehistoric man and this evolved into that and they re-involved into this and whatsoever, um, that's a lot of assuming from this little box of bones, which is really all that we have. That's a very, very bold claim. Um, very bold. Because I have notes and notes and notes going back 30, 40 years ago when I was in college, Kirk, that talked about uh, Lucy and Java Man and Piltdown Man and Peking Man. And you're telling me that there's absolutely no evidence that we, we evolved from, from apes or monkeys or, or some other ancestor? I deal with each one of those subjects that you just mentioned, and you would be surprised how many of them have been proven to be false. Wow. How many of them were hoaxes, even. Well, many of the... Um, cavemen-type ancestors that we learned about in elementary school growing up have since been proven to be frauds or non-existent. Wow. Well, you know what? I'm, I'm going to start that discussion with a comment here about paleoanthropology, which is the field that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And that, that paleoanthropology is one of the most subjective, inexact, and speculative of all the sciences. In mm -hmm. fact, there are some scientists who wonder if it's a science at all. Yes, many scientists wonder that. You don't hear their objections very often, but there's many of them that question this. If you think about it, think about a scientist finding a single tooth in the ground mm. and reconstructing an entire human being from that one tooth as to what he thought it looked like. How rational or reasonable do you think, or how scientific do you think that process is? Which has actually happened in the past. It happens all the time. <laughs> well, uh, let's let's talk about it. Let's talk about Lucy. Lucy was uh, first discovered in 1972 by Donald Johansson, who, by the way, is still leading expeditions for National Geographic. Is he you, really? You I didn't know that. You can actually go online and, and sign up for an expedition with uh, with Johansson as your <laughs> your field guide and start doing digs in Africa. So he's still at it. So he's turned it into a business of well, sorts. He, he's, he's still looking for uh, the real missing link. Yep. But Lucy is what put him into uh, a prominent position back in the early 70s, 1972, uh, exact. And the question was, did he truly find a true ape man, the true intermediary, hailed as the oldest living hominid? Mm -hmm. So did he? Uh, What's the scoop on that? that the was, short answer again? That was Australopithecus uh, afarensis. The short answer is no. And tell me why. Lucy has since been proven to not be exactly what they thought she was. And so what was Lucy? Um, what we think she was now is they have since discovered uh, in 1983, I believe, 
a pygmy chimpanzee called the bonobo, if I'm pronouncing that, that correct. correctly, mm-hmm. was discovered in the jungles of Zaire that is almost identical in body size, stature, and brain capacity to Lucy. So, so many scientists, uh, paleoanthropologists, currently believe that Lucy was a um, is one of these bonobos one of these pygmy chimps yep and not a prehistoric intermediate missing man link yep wow it's interesting but you don't you don't hear that do you no i mean before i did the research for this book i had heard all these stories about lucy and seen all the all the media things about it and i was like wow this really sounds convincing but i never heard about this uh pygmy chimpanzee existing today in Zaire until I did the research for this book and I had to hunt for it. Well, Kirk, we, we only have about seven more minutes and there, there are seven quick examples that I want you to give a quick rundown on. Uh, let's talk about Dr. Dubois' Java Man that was first discovered in 1891 and how that was also a hoax. Yep. Uh, you've probably many listeners, if you're in your uh, 40s or 50s, you probably remember hearing about Java Man when you were in school. However, did you not know that they have proven since that java man was non-existent Mm. Um, they misrepresented some fossils that they found and the whole species has been wiped off the evolutionary record since then it's interesting because it was a skull fragment a left thigh bone three molars that were found on a riverbed and then 20 years later um, the skull was found to be an aborigine okay and uh, dubois finally admitted that everything else was from a uh, uh, um, a previous Gibbon um, monkey type. Again, creature. an evolutionary scientist that was a little overzealous to prove the theory of evolution, and he came up with something that he thought was proof, and then later we find out it isn't. Right. And what about the Piltdown Man in Sussex, England, in 1912? Uh, that's basically the same story. Um, they had exhibits for years in museums and schools and whatever about uh, Piltdown Man until they found out that the jawbone that they had reconstructed this entire individual from was that of a female orangutan who had died only 50 years previously. Isn't that amazing? So it was a And yet they thought it was a fossil millions of years old when they first found it. Right. And the, the teeth were filed down, and from what I understand, the teeth were also treated with a chemical to make them look... Uh, older than they thought, yes. and certainly changed the actual identity of the. They tooth actually itself. played around with it to to make it look older than it was, so it wasn't um, completely um, innocent on these now, guys. The, the remarkable conclusion to this story is that forty years later, it's discovered as a hoax, but it took the evolutionary experts forty years to realize that it to was a hoax this out. Yep. and to admit that it was not factual. Yep, and true. And do you ever remember reading about that, that it was proved false? I do not. That was another piece of information I had to dig to find it. Yeah, it was subdued. Uh, It was certainly suppressed. Scientists do not like to admit that they make mistakes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And what about Peking Man in 1927? Again, they found a tooth uh, that became Piltdown Man, uh, or Peking Man, I'm sorry, and... Again, I remember reading, I I had books, I was fascinated by dinosaurs and cavemen and that kind of stuff when I was a kid, and, you know, I watched the Flintstones every week, and of course, Peking Man, oh, that was one of the biggies, you know, and Java Man, you know, these were the, 
the pictures that you saw most often in the books and the magazines and, you know, holding the clubs and fighting the woolly mammoths and all that. And it was exciting stuff. Yeah. But unfortunately, um, Peking man has also been found to have been a fraud. The cave that his bones were found in, they found the bones of other human beings in that same cave of modern men. Right. So it's like, how could modern man and Peking man, which was supposed to be an ancestor of modern man, have existed at the same time in the same cave? Now the, the That's other a problem. The other interesting thing is that uh, in total in that cave, they found more than 40 original skeletons. But something happened in, in 1941. The, the bones disappeared. All of the skeletons mysteriously disappeared. Isn't that interesting? It's very interesting. Somebody so we can't study them today. S- somebody has skeletons in their closet, Kirk, <laughs> and, and your job is to find out where they are and what they are. If you have a Peking man in your closet, put it up on eBay, and you can sell it for probably quite a few bucks. Okay. And what about Neanderthal man? I, I remember this one specifically because it made the most impression on my 17-year-old mind in, in high school. Yes. Discovered in uh, 1856 yep. in Dusseldorf, Germany, which is just before Darwin um, publishes his, uh, uh, his theory on the origin of species. Yep. And, of course, everybody knows Neanderthal, man. That's all the the uh, great movies that they've made with the dinosaurs and the cavemen and all. It's all Neanderthal men. We all knew that one. Right. And, of course, this was supposed to be the immediate um, pre-ancestor to modern man. This is what we evolved from. Unfortunately, uh, they also found out... Um, I'm trying to look up the year here, relatively recently. 1957 was the year. Okay, 1957. It was 100 years after, 100 years later. We uh, we now know that the common stereotype of the brutish barrel-chested caveman with his overhanging brow and stooped posture is completely false. Based on this and other evidence, Neanderthal man has now been reclassified as a subgroup of modern man who probably had... A number of diseases which caused his stature, his stooped posture, and the strangely shaped skull. Yes, exactly. In fact, uh, modern scientists and physicians realize that his short stature and his bowed legs were from rickets, uh-huh, and probably. that he has severe arthritis in his spine, and that gave him the the hunched back and the crooked back, and and right. made him look like he was. Uh, uh, Standing up, but not quite. Uh, close to being on all fours, but really standing up. And they up. F- they found a number of these skeletons, and they all had the same problem. So apparently there was a group of people uh, living in this area that had these problems, and they made the assumption it was an entire race of human beings that were built that way. Mm. But again, you know, additional research, uh, they found out that that was not correct. So uh, last but not least is Rampithecus from 1934. Uh, and again, this was the bones of a uh, an ancestor of an orangutan. Now, Kirk, we've all seen that evolutionary model where we have the progression of a monkey type uh, mm-hmm. up to the Neanderthal man and then standing yep. up as modern man. Yep. What do you want to say about that before we close the show? Entirely mythical. Mm. We There is no such um, thing in real life as anything resembling that drawing and, and there's no intermediate life form that connects us to any of the primates no you could probably eliminate almost all of those figures in between the first one and the last one well a big thank you to you kirk hastings for helping us out with this show and we've been enjoying your book what is truth we want to continue with you again um so you've been listening to evidence for faith 
with Keith Kendricks and Dr. Mike Larrakis. Join us again next Sunday at 4 p.m. for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah!